Uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And then Paul would say, for in him, verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you want to emphasize something, you're going to repeat it, right? And so that's what Paul did. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so Brother John's as a shepherding pastor, I felt in my spirit that there may be some people that are trying to spoil you. That's how Paul said it. Peter would say it like this. He said they, they want to make merchandise of you. He said there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, heresies of destruction, even denying the Lord that bought them and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many, he said, many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Jude would say it like this. He would say, I, I wanted to write unto you of the common salvation, but I had to write that you would earnestly contend. You know what that means? He says, we need to fight, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Why? There are certain men crept in, unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men. What do these ungodly men do? They turn. They turn the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do they turn it into? lasciviousness. What else do they do? They do what we're going to be talking about tonight. They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight, I, I want to talk to you today about the oneness of God. And tonight, we're going to focus on the humanity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. You may be seated. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. These words begin the confession of faith of what the Hebrews would call here, or in their tongue, the Shema. It would be the uncontested first and greatest commandment that they would diligently teach to their children in their time of bondage. The one God that had wrought signs upon the false gods of Egypt and upon Pharaoh himself would make known unto them that he is God and there is none else beside him. That day they would know and consider in their heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. Their king, their redeemer, the Lord of angel armies would declare, I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no God. He would ask his witnesses 
Is there a God beside me? And before they could give a one-syllable reply, the singular God would say, Yay, there is no God. I know not any. Proclaiming to the rest of the world that this one God would say, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Our God is one. And there is none else beside him. A just God and a savior, there is none beside him. When we talk about God being one, we mean that there is no distinction in his eternal being. He is absolutely and indivisibly one. Additionally, the I am that sent Moses to deliver his people out of Egyptian bondage is the same I am that came incarnate or manifest in the flesh to save us from the bondage of sin. Succinctly, oneness, apostolic believers, we believe that there is one God and that in Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So like I said, we want to look at the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was fully man. He was also fully God. So what do we mean by him being fully man? Well, you can look at yourself. He was fully man in every aspect that we are, except for that dead part we have in us, that fallen man. He did not have a sin nature. So he experienced everything that we experienced as humans. Jesus didn't have a sin nature because sin passed down from Adam and passed upon all men for that all had sinned. The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And that's the quickening spirit that is going to raise us up in the last day. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, when we say Jesus was fully man, we ought not think that Jesus did what perhaps I have on today. I have a a coat on, right? Jesus didn't just walk around with a coat of flesh. This is not divine flesh. That's false doctrine. Not divine flesh. But Paul would say he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Jesus was fully man. What are some examples of him being a man? Well, how did we come into the world? We were born, right? When I was born, at least this is what they tell me. I'm not, I haven't verified it, but the story is, is that when I came out of the womb, they slapped me on the rear end, and I started crying, and they wrote down that time, and I was born. 
October 20th. Jesus, he was born. Paul would say it like this, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. You'll, you'll see this, but when the Bible talks about the humanity of Jesus Christ, it talks about him being sent. Some people would say, well, okay, he's sent from eternity's past. But then it has the same terminology of made, made of a woman, made under the law. So the law has a certain time period, right? He was born at a certain time, about 4 BC. He was born at a certain time. And so the child born, the son given, as prophesied by Isaiah, was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 1.25 would tell us this. He was born to a virgin called Mary. She didn't know a man. And so how would this conception happen? The power of the Holy Ghost would overshadow her. And therefore, that holy child, that holy thing, who shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. So that's the deity aspect of Jesus, right? So that's what makes him God is because the Holy Ghost overshadowed, powered. But we're talking about the humanity. And so he was born of a woman made under the law to redeem those who are under the law. He was, the Bible would say, begotten the only begotten son. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? Some people have it tattooed on their arms. They got the bumper stickers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So if we're going to talk about the humanity of Jesus Christ, let's stick to what the Bible says. Again, Paul said, Don't let, let no man spoil you through philosophy. So philosophy today says, well, let's twist the scriptures. Let's say instead of begotten son, let's say eternal son. But are you going to find that in your Bible? You're not going to find that in the Bible. Eternally begotten? Does someone have your strongest concordance? Can you pull that one up? That's not there as well. Eternal son, that's got to be there, right? No, it's not there. The only begotten son. And the Bible uses that language to indicate to us that Jesus was fully man, like us. And he was also fully God. John 1 and 14, in the word, the thought, the plan, the idea was made flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. What glory? The glory from eternity's past? What does he say? He says the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John very quickly clarifies that when we're talking about this glory, it's the only begotten of the Father. So eternally begotten, eternal Son, or God the Son are all foreign terms to the Bible and to the apostolic church. Amen? 
So he was born. How else was he a man? Well, he got weary. He got tired. I'm sure after this, uh, some of you are going to be pretty tired. Jesus got tired. John 4 and 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. I know we're talking about the humanity of Jesus, but thank God he got weary. Thank God he got weary. He got weary on the journey because the Bible says that he must needs go through Samaria. The disciples don't want to go through Samaria. Why don't they want to go through Samaria? You got to deal with these Samaritans. We don't want to go through Samaria, but he must needs go through Samaria. So Jesus, being weary of his journey, sat thus on the well. Then there comes this woman. And he being weary, give me something to drink. This lady knows that, okay, you're a Jew. You don't have any dealings with us. Why are you even talking to me? Thank God he was weary. He said to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that said, give me to drink, thou would have asked and he would have given thee living water. Can you hear the exhaustion in her voice, though? So they talk and you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Whence house thou then this living water? And she says to him, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. What time was it? Well, it was 12 o'clock in the afternoon. What's a lady doing drawing water at 12 o'clock in the afternoon when the ladies would draw water in the morning time? It's cool. You'll be gathered together and have a little chat with one another. But Jesus was weary, and he had to sit on the well at this time in the afternoon and hear in the exhaustion of her voice, I, I don't want to come here to draw. Give me some of that living water so I don't have to come here anymore. Thank God he was weary. As a man, he got weary and thirsty to offer hope to someone who was weary and thirsty. How else was Jesus a man? Well, Jesus, he wept. He wept. Everyone knows that verse too, right? I hope you know it. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Because the next verse would tell us he loved Lazarus. Oh, how he loved him. In his humanity, he wept because he could be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. How else was he a man? Well, he had limited knowledge. He had limited knowledge. But of the day and that hour, nor of no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So he had limited knowledge. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, Luke 
chapter 2 and verse 52 tells us. Here's an amazing scene in Jesus' life. Remember, he's 12. They're going up to Jerusalem. Customs will have it that during this time of transition, the son would go travel with the mother in her company. And so they would travel up there, and then after Jerusalem and after the feasts and all those things, then now you're a man, and now you get to take the trade of your father. And so you would travel back with your father on the way back. So where's Jesus? Is that a good question? Where's Jesus? Make sure you don't lose Jesus, right? So I, I, I can envision. So I, I use this imagination when looking at the Bible. And so they're traveling. It's Jerusalem. They got a couple days journey. And so um, she pulls out her cell phone. Hey, uh, Joseph, how's uh, Jesus doing? Uh, I, I, uh, I, I thought he was with you. Uh, Joseph, you know how this goes. They go up with mom. They leave with dad. Where is Jesus? Uh, uh, well, I, uh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll turn around and go back and, and so they go back, they find Jesus. Where do they find him? In the temple, teaching, asking questions, and people are being astonished. And so Mary says, we, we've looked and we've searched for you, and we went looking for you sorrowfully. And what did Jesus say? He said, don't you know I got to be about my father's business? I got to be about my father's business. And so they didn't understand it, the Bible says. They had to ponder that. Mary had to ponder that. I have to be about my father's business. But Jesus grew. Jesus got hungry. Again, like us, right? For some of you, I may be the only thing standing between you and Waffle House. I like how the Bible puts it. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. I don't know about you, but after 40 minutes, I am afterward a hunger. Jesus went 40 days. He marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus was how do you guys not believe the humanity of Jesus? Here's another one. He slept. And look at the record of him sleeping. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on the pillow. What was going on in this scene? You remember what was going on? Waves are coming over. The ship is about to turn over, go topside, and they got to go to the ship and wake him up. Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus was pretty sleepy. 
to sleep through waves and billows. And I don't know how he didn't get any water in his ear and going back and forth, but he slept. And he had to be woken up. Jesus, as a man, he is at the right hand of God. Let's, let's, let's discuss this a little bit. He's at the right hand of God because some opponents to the Bible doctrine of the oneness of God would say, oh, look, he is at the right hand of God. So it must be just another person in a Godhead. But the right hand of God has nothing to do with uh Spatial, like, here's my hand, and then here's this guy sitting or standing at this hand. What is the right hand? Well, let's look at the genesis of the right hand. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, have dashed in pieces the enemy. So what is the right hand? It's the position of power and of glory power, and of glory. So when Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, that's the question. Okay, Jesus at the right hand of God, he's in the position of power and glory. Okay, that's Bible, but he's standing at the right hand of God in this instance. When Stephen is being stoned or about to be stoned, and Stephen says, I I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what did they do? They stopped their ears and they ran upon him and stoned him. So remember, God is an invisible spirit. So when we talk about hands, ears, eyes, those are ways for us to understand how God exists. Amen? So when Jesus is at the right hand of God, he's in a state of power and of glory. Here's another one that your friends may throw at you. One of the most quoted verses in the New Testament, Psalms 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So some people will say, ah, look, see, The Lord said unto my Lord. So there you have it. You have two beings. Well, let's look at it. The Lord, in your Bible, you may have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord said unto my Lord, capital L, lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D, sit thou at my right hand. So someone brings that up to you, you just say, yeah, yeah, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until. So there's a time in that, right? Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So that's not something we need to shy away from. Jesus didn't shy away from it. This was Jesus' go-to text. You're in trouble when God starts asking you questions. You're in trouble when the master starts asking you questions. You remember Job? 
He was saying, I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to complain before him and tell him my case. And God shows up out of the whirlwind and says, gird up your loins, Job. Prepare yourself like a man. I will declare unto thee and you will answer. What did Job say? Brother Walker, Job said, I got to do this. I, I, I can't say anything. And so when Jesus used this text, he said, you know what? You guys have been questioning me. I'm going to question you. So it's okay to be apologetic in what we believe. You don't always have to be in the defense. Remember, Jude said, earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. You're not back into a corner and say, well, uh, well, I believe there's one God and don't beat me up too bad. No, we can earnestly contend for the faith. We don't have to be back in the corner because this thing wasn't done in the corner. Jesus would say, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say unto him, the son of David. Okay. How then doth David in spirit, David is prophesying, right? How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Response, no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth to ask him any more questions. If you're in a debate, that's where you want them. You want them silenced. But the Lord, the capital L-O in R&D, the Yahweh, the I am, the Almighty, said unto my Lord, my master, sometimes Adonai, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. We like Acts chapter 2, right? Right? Amen? Then Peter said unto them, we like that, right? The verses before that, this was Jesus had his go-to verse, and so Peter said, well, Jesus used it. I'm going to use it on the birthday of the church to unlock the keys of the church. David is not in, ascended into heaven, but he saith, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know shortly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. The writer of Hebrews, he's going to use this verse as well. So you have your friends, Hebrews 1. They want to use this one too. Up oh, here we go. We got eternal son right here. But think about the argument, how, how invalid this argument would be. So Hebrews 1 and 13. So the writer is bringing up the supremacy of Christ the man Christ Jesus, right? And so he says in verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time? So if we're talking about the eternal son, why would I use the argument of to which of the angels? This eternal son should be greater than the angels, right? So what, what is the point of that argument? It's not an eternal son. It's a begotten son. It's a son that was glorified. So the Lord said unto my Lord, make, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God by miracles, signs, and wonders. Let's look at another aspect. So we have the right hand of God. But then we have Jesus as a man. He prayed. He prayed. He taught us how to pray, right? That's another one we know, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He taught us how to pray. Luke 5 and 16 tells us he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Jesus not, so Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. And so when Jesus prayed, it was not divinity praying to another divinity, but it was the man praying to divinity. Again, think about the argument. If I have a divine person praying to another divine person, how divine is that person? Not very divine. Jesus wasn't praying to... Let's, let's say it this way. Jesus, in... John chapter 17, this is what we, we will call the high priest prayer of Jesus. And so some of your friends may use this one, right? John 17 and 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Can we put that verse, John 17 and 3? Jesus is praying. He's praying for his disciples. This is his prayer, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's praying to divinity. You, who is you? The only true God. The only true God. The God that when we came out of the womb, it was here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is no God else beside him. So Jesus had that same God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the first time Jesus referred to himself by his own name, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So here, Jesus, in Jesus' prayer, he calls the Father, which is his Father, the only true God. Spirit is not mentioned here. The Holy Ghost is not mentioned here. The Father, the only true God. So, his prayer is this, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I want them to know this. I'm praying that the believers would know this, that they would realize this, that they would understand this, that deity and humanity, they have to know this. That was his prayer. Part of that prayer was already answered, right? The Jews, monotheistic, that means they believed in one God. That part was already answered. They knew that the Father was the one true God. 
and or permitting, maybe next week we'll look at 1 Corinthians 8, but to us there is but one God, the Father. So they didn't have to know that the Father was the only true God, but they had to know the and. They had to know the and. And, and so if I had to, like, subtitle this message, The Oneness of God, it would be the glory of and. The glory of and. Brother Turner, brother uh, who had just passed away, um, no, uh, brother, uh, he put me on to him, uh, brother James, uh, Johnny James, Johnny James, Johnny James. He had a sermon. And he said, everybody's got a butt. Johnny James was pretty witty, right? So I said, okay, well, I'm not Johnny James, but the glory of Anne. Let's look at that conjunction now, the glory of Anne. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You must know the Father, which Jesus Christ himself calls the true God. The Father is synonymous with God, so Jesus calls the Father his God. John 20 and 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended unto my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Jesus as a man, he had a God, and he served one God, the Father. So if Jesus and the Holy Ghost are true God of true God, Jesus failed yet again to acknowledge it here. He didn't acknowledge it here. Rather, he stayed consistent with the scriptures that there was only one God, the Father. So what does that make Jesus? That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou sent. Either he's an imposter or an anointed man, approved of God, or somehow the Father. Jesus' prayer to the Father and his high priest's prayer would be that his followers would know the Father, the only true God. This is the part of the prayer which was already answered, but the second part is that they would know Jesus Christ as part of that and. Where do we find the answer to that, though? Well, who wrote John? John the Beloved. He wrote another book, too. He wrote an epistle called 1 John. And so 1 John was written toward the close of the century where the apostles are about died off. Certain men are creeping unawares into the church. And so he's laying for these children, these young men, these fathers, core foundational doctrine. And so John, toward the close of this letter, he would rehash what Jesus said. John would say it like this. He said, we know this now. We know this. Remember Jesus' prayer that they may know? John says, we know this. One of his last and we knows in 1 John 5, there's a couple and we knows in 1 John 5, but this is the last one. 
And look at what it says. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. This is the true God in eternal life. Brother Jory, I, um, you're getting questioned by the board and explain to us the oneness of God, explain, and so this was my, my go-to verse here. And so I was, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, but to us there is but one God. And I came to this verse. And I, I couldn't finish the verse. Because as it happens now, I get, I get choked up with that last part. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God and eternal life. They already knew about the only true God, right? That first part, Jesus' prayer was that they would know in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John says, and we know now. We're not letting go of this, Father and Son deity, and humanity. This is the true God in eternal life. So what is this, though? Who is this? That's where the Bible quizzer came out of me. You got to identify your pronouns when you're answering questions in Bible quizzing. This is the true God in eternal life. The antecedent for this, and musicians can come, is the one who healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The antecedent is the one who turned the water into wine. The antecedent is the one who opened blinded eyes. The antecedent is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. The antecedent is the one who said, I am the bread of life. The antecedent is the one who said, I am the light of the world. The antecedent is the one who said, I am the door. The antecedent is the one who said, I am the good shepherd. The antecedent is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. The antecedent is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The antecedent is the one who said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. The antecedent is the one whom every knee will bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue will confess the antecedent is the one named Jesus. Jesus. Jesus Christ is the true God and 
and eternal life. to you just as John ended his epistle. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Jesus Christ is the true God in eternal life. If you have a moment, let's come to the altar. And thank God, again, we're people that know that name. We're people that call upon that name we're people that trust in that name. We're people that are not ashamed of that name. We're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. If you need healing, you can call upon that name. You need salvation. He is able to save to the uttermost. You're not too far. Your situation is not too great. Your sickness is not too far gone. By his stripes we are healed. So let's pray to that one God. That one God that came to save us. He didn't send another. He came himself. He didn't say, hey, son, go do the dirty work, but he said, I'm going to come in flesh. Condemn sin in the flesh. I'm going to redeem fallen humanity that whosoever will, let him come unto me, find life. Let's praise that one God right now. 